From the moment we're born and lock eyes with our parents, we are inspiring others. By showing up as a vessel of service, we not only help others, we help ourselves. Welcome to SOS Stories of Service, hosted by Teresa Carpenter, hear from ordinary people from all walks of life who have transformed their communities by performing extraordinary work. Well, hello everybody and happy Monday and welcome to the 74th episode of Stories of Service, Ordinary People Who Do Extraordinary Work. And I'm the host of Stories of Service, Teresa Carpenter. And once again, we have another incredible guest who is making a huge difference in the life of animals on the animal protection policy level. Marty Irby, how are you doing today? Great, thank you so much for having me today, Teresa. Well, I'm so honored to have you on. Uh, Animal protection and policy work is is a passion of mine that goes back probably more than 10 years. And uh, I found myself as my duty stations move, uh, finding the local causes in that community uh, that impact uh, animals. And I get to do that even here in a parliament meeting uh, coming up on the 21st. So really excited. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, there's a guy here named Mark Abraham, who's leading up uh, that effort. He's very big in the media and it's just been nice to be able to uh, continue to do that no matter where I go. That's the beauty of of this cause. So I'm going to give you guys a little bit about Marty and then we're just going to get into some questions. Uh, It's going to be a little longer bio biography, but I wanted to really give him the credit that is due and and really educate you guys on his work. So Marty Irby is one of the nation's top lobbyists and is the only federal animal protection lobbyist living in Washington, D.C., who was named as one of the the Hill's top lobbyists for 2019, 2020, and 2021. And this is a special tie to to, to England. He was honored by the, the late Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II in 2020 for his work to protect horses and in violence and horse training. He is also recognized on national television in the Oval Office by President Donald J. Trump at the signing of the Preventing Animal Cruelty and Torture, which is PACT Act, that Irby helped usher to pass in 2019. He currently serves as the Chief Lobbyist and Executive Director at Animal Wellness Action on the Board of Directors and as Board Secretary for the Organization for Competitive Markets as the Congressional Liaison for the Pennsylvania Bar Association's Animal Law Section, as well as on the steering committee for both Congressman Nancy Mace and Congressman Buddy Carter. Before joining Animal Wellness Brands, he headed up equine protection and rural affairs departments at the Humane Society of the United States and served as the senior Republican lobbyist on Capitol Hill for the Humane Society Legislative Fund. He worked in the United States House of Representatives for Congressman Ed Whitefield, serving as press secretary, then communications director in agricultural animal protection, science committee, and NASA policy advisor. He worked with farmers and agricultural groups from Kentucky and around the United States. He's originally from South Alabama, and he grew up on a farm with horses, cattle, and other animals. As a young adult, he immersed himself into the study of equine issues, including pedigrees, breeding techniques, and reproduction, and found success in the Tennessee walking horse community and in politics as the chairman of the Mobile County Young Republicans and Mobile County Republicans Executive Committee. After graduating with a Bachelor's of Arts degrees in communication from the University of South Alabama in 2003, he served four years of director in sales marketing at Waterhill Farms in Shelby, Tennessee. And there he promoted and expanded the farm's cattle production program and worked with more than 2,000 equine breeders from the US, Canada, Mexico, Germany, Poland, and Israel. 
His mentor, William B. Williams, founder of the Ritz-Carlton Hotel Company and the owner of Waterfall, later promoted him to executive vice president of real estate, W.B. Johnson International, the parent company of Ritz-Carlton. In addition, from 2003 to 2009, he's won seven world championships, one world grand championship, four reserve world grand championships, four reserve world championships, and one natural uh, future, uh, futurity? futurity championship with, with walking horses. In 2005, he was elected to the Tennessee Walking Horse Breeders and Exhibitors Association International Board of Directors, where he held several positions as the association through the years, including two terms as vice president of marketing, and in 2010 became the youngest president in the history at only the age of 31. He served as president for two terms and chose not to run for election in 2012, and we'll talk more about that. But while president, he shifted his focus towards animal protection and joined the charge to eliminate cruel training practices in the equine world. Since then, he has successfully worked to pass 37 federal and state laws and ballot initiatives, including the Sunscreen Innovation Act, the Safe and Accurate Food Labeling Safety Act, the National All Schedules Prescription Electric Reporting Reauthorization Act, Horse Racing Integrity and Safety Act, Paul's for Veterans Therapy Act, Pet and Women's Safety Act, Dog and Cat Meat Trade Prohibition Act, Preventing Cruelty and Torture Act, Rescuing Animals with Rewards Act, Parity and Animal Cruelty Enforcement Act, and a ban on greyhound racing in Florida, and a ban on bestiality in Kentucky, to name a few. He pens a call, regular column on conservatism and animal protection in the Daily Caller, and in 2018, he attended Wesley Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C. His works have been published in NBC News, USA Today, The Tennessean, Knoxville News, Centennial, Horse Nation, Arkansas Democrat Gazette, New Haven Register, Penn Capital Star, Hill, Washington Examiner, and numerous other publications across the United States. And guys, I'm almost finished. In 2021, he partnered with the director of Disney's 2020 Black Beauty film, Ashley Avis, to produce a documentary on the plight of our iconic American wild horses being eradicated from federal lands. Wild Beauty, Mustang Spirit of the West, that won the award for best documentary at the Boston Film Festival in September of 2022. Welcome, Marty. No, thank you. I know that was a mouthful, Teresa. And uh, <laughs> we actually have since won the St. Louis, Missouri Film Festival, which qualifies the film to be nominated for an Oscar since oh my last updated. So oh my we'll gosh, congratulations. Goes. That is incredible. Oh my gosh. And, and I know that that was so much to read, but it was just such a rich history that I really wanted to just start with the content of some of the things we're going to talk about. And then we're going to start getting a little bit deeper. So the first thing I want to start about is how did you get involved in the horse uh, industry or caring for horses and being around horses? How did all that originate? Well, I was really born into it. My uh, paternal grandfather was a veterinarian in Mobile, Alabama, who traded a vet bill owed to him for a Tennessee walking horse in 1955 named April Sue Neal. And um, he had that mare registered and became a member of the breed registry 20 years after its inception. Uh, then my maternal great-grandfather uh, had actually started the Mobile County Sheriff's Posse uh, along with my my maternal grandfather and my two grandfathers and great-grandfather were all friends and had horses and that's how my parents met. My father was a horse trainer when I was younger, Tennessee walking horses, and my family started putting me on a horse 
by myself when I was one or two, they say, and uh, I was riding kind of full throttle by myself when I was three and began showing and competing when I was four years old. So it's just been a part of my life. It's like learning how to walk. I don't remember how. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I just always have been able to. So for when you say Tennessee walking horse, for somebody who's listening to this, who's never heard of those, that, that type of racing or that, that industry, can you give a little bit of a description about it? Right. Yes. Well, the Tennessee walking horse was uh, established as a breed registry in 1935 in Lewisburg, Tennessee. It had been around for about 30 years or four or more before that uh, is a um, gated horse. So it's a very smooth ride. It has a four beat gate. Um, they're known as uh, the glide ride or the slogan used to be ride one today, own one tomorrow, because a lot of people, uh, especially those who are older and have back problems, don't want to ride a horse that is either trotty or pacey because they bounce. So mm. a Tennessee walking horse is a perfect, just uh, almost you can you can just sit there smoothly and never feel a bounce if the horse is performing the gait right. And um, it sort of was established in Middle Tennessee in a town called War Trace. Uh, nearby Shelbyville, Tennessee is where the World Grand Championship Horse Show is. And nearby Lewisburg, Tennessee is where the breed registry that I was president of is. So, um, you know, it's a wonderful, wonderful horse, unfortunately, because they have such a calm and nice uh, disposition, they have lent themselves easily to abuse. And trainers and other unscrupulous people in the industry have for many years uh, taken on and, and used a practice called soaring, S-O-R-I-N-G, to intentionally make a horse's foot sore or hurt. So they intentionally inflict pain to the horse's pasterns around the skin. Uh, and then under the hooves, um, they'll use uh, chemicals like mustard oil, diesel fuel, croton oil, uh, even abrasive hand cleaners on the skin. And then many times sharp objects under the hooves. They exacerbate the pain created by those instruments and, and uh, chemicals by placing chains, ankle chains. Yes, in 2023 are still mm-hmm. legal in the United States to show these horses around their feet and then these large stacked shoes. And what that does is create an exaggerated version of their natural gait called the big lick. It's completely man-made, completely manufactured, and completely made and created out of nothing but pain. So when a horse steps high, the horse is really stepping high because they're trying to get away from that pain. And the Tennessee Walking Horse National Celebration, where the world championship is, has rewarded this for decades since the 1960s, the 1970. Horse Protection Act was enacted to stop this. My late friend, Joe Tidings, was a Democrat Maryland senator who actually passed that law. And he died in 2018, spent more than 50 years of his life trying to stamp out soaring and unfortunately did not achieve that end. But we're working hard with federal legislation to hopefully amend that Horse Protection Act of 1970 to stamp this practice out for good. Why uh, in this industry, why is that? I saw some videos of it. It's basically this exaggerated gait with the front legs. That's what it looks like to me anyway, as a lay person who's not in the industry. Why? Like, what is that? What, why is that look? I mean, I guess I could ask the same thing about English bulldogs or the people, you know, is it just a preference? Like what, what is it about that gait that, that draws people to, to, to call that right? It is a preference. You know, the first artificial devices put on a Tennessee walking horse were on the first world grand champion, a horse named Strolling Jim in 1939. He was a gelding. 
And while he didn't have all of that mess on his feet, he had what they call a tail brace where they cut the ligaments of the tail to make the tailbone fold in half over a little metal stand, all for a preference, all for a look that makes the horse's tail stand up. And once they did that, they opened themselves up to all of these other devices. And what I believe they were trying to achieve in the beginning was to look like the American saddlebred horse because they step high, they have a tail brace on, they're very similar in the way that they go and the way that they look. But the difference is that a American saddlebred has a trot and it's a different type of gait. And a Tennessee walking horse is not actually built and made to step high with their front legs like mm-hmm. that where an American saddlebred is. Uh, they kind of, uh, for lack of better words, use their front legs in an up and down fashion and they don't extend outward. The Tennessee walking horse people have for many years tried to create this manufactured gait that it causes the foot to extend outward. And at the end of the day, the horse that steps the highest wins the prize. So it is completely solely about preference and a certain look that once upon a time someone thought looked good but there are a lot of things in the world that once yeah. upon a time people thought looked good that are terrible, terrible things. And I hear people have these comments sometimes from Tennessee. Well, this is our history. This is our tradition. Sure. Well, some traditions are made to be broken. Absolutely. So how did you come to that conclusion in your mind and in your growth and development from I, I love this sport. This is something my whole family is doing. It's such a part of it's such, such a fabric of my being to saying, okay, now I'm the president of this organization and I'm running the, the standards for this organization to, I, I'm going to speak out about this issue. How does that transition happen? Well, it was very difficult. I mean, I'd say it's a, just sort of a journey of my entire life. Uh, up until about the age of 13, I was not aware of soaring, really didn't understand what it was. But my father actually showed me how to soar a horse when I was 13. It was a horse named High Tones Clown. He had white feet. And when his feet would get irritated, the pink skin would show. Uh, We would use desitin, which is, uh, I don't even know if they still have that, but it was like a diaper rash ointment to to make the pink go away so you could pass the horse through inspection. And I just always felt there was something really wrong about this. It was something like we weren't supposed to talk about. Mm -hmm. And over the course of the next five years, as as I grew into adulthood, as a teenager from 13 to 18, I saw more and more of this and uh, really wanted to try to do something to help in this, but I didn't know what to do. And uh, for the most part, I started showing uh, more and more in what they call the flat shot or naturally gated divisions of the Tennessee walking horse breed. So you still have Tennessee walking horse shows where there are horses that are not being soared that are exhibiting their natural gait. And there are shows where they're mixed together, where horses are showing with their natural gait and other horses are showing in this manufactured big lick sort of gait. So uh, I tried to transition into that, still did show these horses that had this stuff on their feet. And um, in 2003, uh, actually won my first world championship on a horse that I had raised and uh, we had sent to Tennessee. I lived in Alabama at the time. And I really saw a whole nother level of soaring I had never seen before with the use of croton oil and things that were just terrible. And I think it was at that point I was, I was um, you know, in sort of a, a new phase of my, my life in the Tennessee walking horse world. I had just won a world championship. Uh, I actually was hired, as you mentioned in my bio, to go run Waterfall Farms in Shelbyville, Tennessee, and dealt with breeders all over the world and would talk to them about this. You know, when you're talking to people in Israel or Washington State, um, Canada, whatever the case may be, 
most people do not agree with this practice of soaring and don't do it. It's primarily Tennessee and Kentucky and some bordering southeastern states where this occurs. So I just sort of started to uh, try to engage the industry in incremental change. Sure. And in 2005, uh, I was able to connect with Monty Roberts, the man who listens to horses. Uh, my mentor tracked him down after I had read uh, a book that he had written called The Man Who Listens to Horses and wanted to get him involved to help the Tennessee walking horse world uh, be educated on national natural horsemanship. I mean, one of the things I think is very, very difficult to deal with is when you're changing a culture and you're trying to get trainers to do something different, you have to empower them to know what true natural horsemanship principles are. And when we're talking about Tennessee walking horse trainers, for the most part, they know nothing. They know what their father or their uncle mm -hmm. taught them. It's very, very limited. They don't even have a clue what real horsemanship is. I hate to say that, but we tried to impart this on them through the work with Monty and uh, did for many years. So he and I have been friends, you know, 18 or 19 years now. And uh, at the time when we first tracked him down, he was actually with Queen Elizabeth and her horses over in Great Britain. He flew to Tennessee, met with us. We worked for a couple of years, um, really honestly didn't have much success. Sadly, the trainers kind of wrote it off and, you know, said, what is this hocus pocus? That's that's kind of the way the mentality right. is down there yeah. in Middle Tennessee. So um I, you know, started working more in uh, elected roles as vice president of marketing for the breed registry while I was still uh, in my career working as director of sales and marketing for the Waterfall Farms there. And uh, the World Equestrian Games happened. And I guess it was probably 2000, somewhere in the, the mid 2000s, 2007 or eight. Um, and they, we had a sponsorship of the World Equestrian Games, the Breed Registry had sponsored in Lexington, Kentucky, just three or four hours away. And they sent our check back and said they didn't want us there because of the soaring issues surrounding the breed. And mm -hmm. then um, a few years later, once I was elected president, uh, it was the second year I was president in 2012, um, the Humane Society of the United States came out with an undercover expose video of a guy named Jackie McConnell brutally beating and torturing horses uh, to achieve this soaring and to try to, uh, what they do is they call it stewarding, where they actually try to get them to take their mind off the pain on their feet so that they can pass inspection. So they hurt them somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And um, I had seen some of this over my life uh, or years involved in the industry. Some of it, I had not seen anything that bad in some of the video footage that we saw and ABC Nightline put it out there nationally. So um, I asked through a mutual acquaintance to meet with the president of the Humane Society, Wayne Paselli, and uh, he came to Tennessee and met with me um, 11 years ago now. And we just hit it off and became friends. And I said, look, I want to try to change this. And I don't know if I can do it or not, um, but I want to work with you guys to try to do that. So we worked to see legislation introduced the Prevent All Soaring Tactics or PAST Act that I then publicly came out in support of. And uh, I knew it was going to be a lot of backlash. Oh, yeah. I don't think I knew how bad the backlash was going to be and how brutal people would be. But as a result of publicly coming out in support of that legislation, uh, my father and I didn't speak for five and a half years. My wife and I divorced. I lost my business, had to file for bankruptcy. I had a, a construction company at the time by then. And uh, most of my business was from people in the horse industry. So no one would do business with me. So I say it's like a, a bad country music song. You know, <laughs> the only thing I, I didn't have happen is my truck didn't break down. 
But um, but I wouldn't trade that life for anything today and, and what I'm able to do today. And what that did was uh, enabled me to come to Washington, D.C. Uh, in 2013, 10 years ago now. I tell people I came here to testify in Congress um, with the intent to be here a few days, and I never left. And here I am 10 years later because I, I did testify. I had all sorts of death threats and threats for physical harm. And then oh, I'm I sure. Started, yeah, it was, I, there was a series of articles in the Huffington Post then, and, and so... Uh, some people are dumb enough to put their name in writing with a threat. <laughs> uh, you know, so I, I took those screenshots and shared them and we made that guy famous. His name was Chip Weddington. And uh, so the congressman I had testified for, he said, Marty, gosh, you're going to get murdered if you go back to Tennessee and you don't have a job. You've lost everything. I literally had like two nickels to rub together. Um, and he said, why don't you just stay here and uh, stay at my house for a while till you figure things out. And uh, his wife and he were traveling and I stayed and kept their dogs. And then eventually a, a job in his office, just a very low level, uh, mm-hmm. about as low level job as you could have opened up because uh, one of his staff went to go run for Congress. So I took that job and one thing led to another and, and here we are. And uh, oh we started Animal Wellness Action in 2018. We have now enacted because uh, the bio didn't include the five that we had in December. Uh, 12 new animal protection laws since we started the organization in 2018 are now law. That's outstanding, Marty. Oh my God. What a story. I mean, not not a lot of people do what you did and, and have their whole life turned upside down because of a cause. I mean, there's a few people. Stu Scheller is one in the military world who spoke out against uh, the Department of Defense, and he, re- his story is, you're the second now person I've talked to that, that's done this kind of thing. And it, it's, it had to have been like the most, the most pivotal moment of your life when you realize like, I, I can't, I can't be a part of this anymore. I, I'm going to go quote unquote to the, to the dark side or the other side of this issue. <laughs> yeah, no, I'd say the bright side. I was on the dark side. <laughs> Well, that, that's it, true. always sort of torn and trying to change it internally. And, you know, I, I probably would have done what I did sooner, but I didn't really have the answer to get behind. And the past act enabled me to have something to speak up and say, look, this is what we can do. You know, if you're right. just speaking out against something and you don't have a solution, that doesn't really help you or anybody else. So, no. you know, that's kind of why I waited till then. But it was definitely, you know, there are defining moments in life. It was probably the most defining moment of my life. I, I don't regret it one bit. Um, you know, I think the only thing that I would probably do different is I probably would have just done something a little sooner. That's all. But uh, it was it was well worth it. And unfortunately, we still haven't passed the past act 11 years now. I don't think we're probably ever going to pass it as written. But no good law gets uh, enacted without going through some changes. So we have actually been working with some of the people I knew back in the day in the industry that have also, you know, sort of changed their opinion and become more forward thinking about it on a compromise that would achieve that same set of um, prohibitions and a federal felony for soaring. And then some other things that the original past act didn't have, like the tail brace I talked about, the original past act did not address that at all. So our compromise would actually get rid of that tail brace too and allow a smaller shoe like the American Saddlebred has um, because we know if we pass the past act as it is written, and I don't think we can, honestly, um, then they're going to be facing lawsuits because of the argument of breed discrimination. I'm not saying I buy into that, but I am saying that uh, we know there's going to be a lawsuit. We know 
certain people in the industry have raised at least $2 million for a lawsuit. And unfortunately, on about seven out of eight cases uh, or instances, the industry has won in court. So I don't like the odds in court. I want to see mm-hmm. something change for good. And the only way we're going to get there is by working with people in the industry who buy into this and buy into the change and are willing to be a part of it, not just trying to force something upon them. Because people, I mean, we've seen it, cockfighters, we've seen it uh, with horse racing. We've seen it in a lot of other instances where you enact the law and people just snub the law and, right. uh, and flout the law and go underground. And that's not what we want. We want to stop this for good. So let me just back up to what you said about breed uh, discrimination. So the argument is that if you take away soaring, um, you, what you, the, the, the animals can't have that exaggerated gait, but how is that discriminating against the breed? I'm just trying to understand oh, that mentality. Sorry, I should, no, I should have better explained that. So the PAST Act uh, is there are certain devices that are used in the soaring process that are legal now. So those chains and those shoes I talked about are legal. And that's the main thing I'm talking about. If you eliminate those as they are, you'll eliminate 70% of the problem right out of the gate. The current PAST Act says that it applies only to walking, racking, and spotted saddle horses, three breeds. Mm, so that's I where see. this comes into play. Now, the reason it says that is because the rest of the equine world wanted that. Um, we even had a regulation one time where it said walking, racking, and other related breeds in the American Horse Council and all of these horse breeds went absolutely ballistic um, and slowed down the regulation and ultimately prevented it from getting done uh, because, you know, other related breeds could mean anything that could mean what are all horses related or, you know, you could really trace back uh, every breed in existence today to the same set of horses. So uh, there's a lot up in the air about that. And we just want to make sure that we have really covered all the bases. So um, if you allow the equipment you could still have the breed specific language, but if you allow the equipment that saddlebreds have, which is a much smaller shoe and no action device or no chain around their foot, uh, instead of getting rid of the shoe altogether, you destroy that argument because you're allowing them to have what the other breeds have and are currently using. Wow. It's so specific. And so I can only imagine that perhaps those other breeds use some sort of a device that is quote unquote, not as cruel. So is that that that's their argument that is if you if you if you pass that bill then those other breeds will be lumped in or they feel like they would have been lumped in to this and then not been able to i mean i just kind of look at it like if it's cruel it's cruel (laughs) you know it's just that's crazy to me but i know what you mean it's like an incremental push like you have to start somewhere and if, if you can just get certain parts of the provision passed. I mean, that that's lawmaking 101 is, is sometimes you have to whittle things down to just the bare minimum so that you can get something passed initially. Right. And, and this compromise would achieve 90% of the past act. Really, the only thing it would not achieve is it would not eliminate the shoe altogether, but would achieve a smaller shoe that would have to be removable for inspection. And then sort of in trade for that, we got them to agree to give up that tail brace, which wasn't addressed in the original past act. And there's some provisions that also refer to more science-based objective testing protocols like thermography, the algometer, Mm -hmm. blood testing, uh, urine testing, and things that are very finite because we've seen the subjective use of palpation, visual inspections, and things like that uh, utilized to turn horses away at the horse show, but they don't hold up in court. And mm-hmm. so that's why people have in, in 
53 years since the Horse Protection Act was enacted. Two people have ever been convicted. Both of them uh, ended up with probation and or house arrest. Uh, Jackie McConnell and Barney Davis are the two people. And a lot of the reason is because so much of this inspection protocol uh, work just doesn't hold up in court. So you have to have things that are finite and the industry wanted that. And I understand that. I mean, people want to mm -hmm. have certainty. So if you know the test is going to be test A, B, C, D, E, and it's black and white and there's no gray area, you know, I think that's fair to the people who are showing horses and that's fair to the horse. You know, this entire story reminds me so much of, of what little I've learned about Carol Baskin's fight for the Big Cat Public Safety Act. I, I feel listening to her story, and I think it was 20 years that it took them to, to pass that. Um, this is this is a very similar kind of thing. So your 11 years is certainly not in vain. Um, it, it will, it will I, I believe, one day will pay off and will pay off in, in a huge way. And then in the meantime, you're working all these other issues in, right. in Congress. So tell me a little bit about that. Like, how is it, how has the process been working with legislators. I mean, you were, you were voted the top lobbyist. So obviously you're, you're getting around there and you're really getting, getting, getting dug into this industry as you did your last industry. So how has that been for you? Well, it's really been great. And um, I would say the two things I've enjoyed the most were working with Howard and Carol on the Big Cat Public Safety Act. We got signed into law in December and then the Horse Racing Integrity and Safety Act that we got signed into law in 2020. I tell people, you know, I started this to pass the PAST Act and try to save maybe 2,500 horses in the world. That's probably how many horses are being soared actively. And that's, uh, you know, probably a little high. The number's a little high anyway. Um, but uh, we haven't gotten there, but we did pass a law to end doping in the U.S. that will affect hundreds of thousands of horses. So, you know, you look at the greater good and you start to realize that you measure things by the number of lives you're impacting. And, you know, that's very rewarding in itself. Uh, like you said, it took 20 years for Howard and Carroll to get that bill done. And it was a compromise. It was a portion of what they had originally started with. And we ended cub petting and we ended the private ownership of big cats moving forward. The horse, the, the cats involved now were grandfathered in that people have, so they wouldn't be taken away. So you have to be able to make compromise and get anything through Congress um, it's a very intricate process. It's never easy. I can't tell you anything that we've ever done here that was easy, especially in a divided Congress. But um, there are people on both sides of the aisle who want to work with us. And these issues are a set of issues that do bring people together in a divided mm -hmm. Congress. So we have a few new initiatives that we're working on for the 118th Congress. We have the Veterans for Mustangs Act that I know would probably appeal to you where we would uh, train uh, veterans to go out and implement fertility control to wild horse populations on the range and help with wild horse management. Mm -hmm. We've got that bill introduced uh, a few weeks ago, HR 726, and now have 10 Republicans and nine Democrats, almost 50 50 as co sponsors. We've got a huge mm -hmm. raft of other pieces of legislation we're working on in this Congress to try to get included in the Farm Bill because the Farm Bill only occurs every five years. Uh, this is a Farm Bill year. So we have a Animal fighting uh, upgrade to prohibit uh, whenever they opened up sports betting, they actually opened up gambling on cockfighting to cockfights in other countries online. So we're trying to close that loophole now. Um, and then we're also working to bring transparency to the uh, corrupt USDA commodity checkoff programs 
where we see farmers' dollars being used against them to actually put them out of business, small farmers that are more humane type farmers, and, and the big ag folks have really shut them out. Um, we're working to end greyhound racing. That's one of the things that we're trying to do on the national level. We got the Florida ban done, as you mentioned in my bio a few years ago. The last track in Arkansas subsequently closed. Then uh, the last tracks in Alabama, Texas, and Iowa closed. So now they're just two tracks left operating in the state of West Virginia. And we've got some other new issues we're working on. One is a little bit of a one-off from animal welfare, but it has to do with the overproduction of milk because uh, many years ago we were producing 9,000 pounds of milk per year per cow. You're at about 27,000 pounds per mil of, of milk per year per cow. And that has caused all kind of hoof and uh, hip problems uh, because of the weight and the production mm. issue and wow. the treatment of the animals. But what that ties into is to a new bill. Uh, I think we're going to name it the Child Milk Act, which would stand for curbing harmful intolerance of lactose and dairy mandated in lunches for kids. Um, it took me two hours to come up with that. Um, but it's very creative the way the bills are named. I, I have to say it's a, it's an interesting issue because 75% of African-American children, 60% of Hispanics, 95% of native Americans and 90% of Pacific Asian Islanders are lactose intolerant. And the federal government pays for the school lunch program uh, mostly minority children. I actually happen to be lactose intolerant myself is 15% of Caucasians. Uh, and these children are being force fed dairy that's making them sick. Uh, many of them have gone into anaphylactic shock. There are some that have asthma, um, stomach problems, and they're being force fed dairy all because the dairy lobby is a really strong lobby. And so the USDA uh, won't even reimburse a school for the plate if that carton of milk is not on the plate. So we're not reimbursing them for anything else on the plate. Now here's, here's the kicker. This is as swampy as it gets in Washington, DC. The secretary of agriculture, Tom Vilsack was secretary of agriculture under Barack Obama. He left to go work at the dairy checkoff for nearly a million dollars a year in the four years after that. And then he came back to serve as Biden's secretary of agriculture. So this is why we're not getting anywhere with yep. the USDA right now. And, we have a new bill uh, that we're working on, as I mentioned, that we probably will name that. Uh, Congresswoman Nancy Mace from South Carolina and Congressman Troy Carter from Louisiana are going to be introducing. And so uh, be on the lookout for that, too. But it, it is related to animal welfare. But we, we do extend a little bit beyond the direct issues because, you know, our slogan is helping animals helps us all at the end of the day. Yeah. And, you know, you bring up such a great point that I can see a parallel even in the military world where we have people who are general and flag officers in the military, and then they go work for Raytheon or they go work for uh, Boeing or Lockheed, and then they just come right back and influence through their Boeing and Lockheed, the same people that they just worked with in the DOD to get the most favorable contracts. And it's just, and it sounds like in the USDA world, you, you have you have those same kind of things where someone leaves Congress and then they go work and, you know, they go from the USDA to do a seat in Congress or they go back and that's, and you're fighting that. I mean, you're, you're, you're every day when you're, you're lobbying on the Hill, you're, you're kind of fighting those inner interconnections and those influences that uh, you really can't 100% control or account for because they're longstanding relationships and promises that were made. Uh, and it's entirely legal uh, for them to do that. And, um, it, it's unfortunate, I think, because it makes people like myself lose faith in government institutions. 
because yeah. we see those kinds of incestuous relationships and how they get formed. And then we see like you like that example that you just named. Um, and, and, and so it's, it's hard to, to fight against that. And the only thing that you can do is, is speak up and speak out about it um, as, as a citizen and, and, and say that you demand better of your, of your government institutions and you want them to be better and, and to be more accountable. Right. It's, it's very much a revolving door around this place, unfortunately, but I think we can be better and do better. And we've got to be more fair to the average American, to the American farmers, to the animals, instead of this top down philosophy, we need a bottom up philosophy in this country. And hopefully we'll get there. I, I have faith. Um, there are a lot of people who I talk to Marty, like yourself, uh, Scott Mann, you know, Stu Scheller was the same way who, who do feel that, you know, our, our country is, is, is a wonderful country of hardworking men and women who, who care about what happens. And when we are aware of something, uh, we stand up and we fight and, and, and we do make change. And I, and I've seen that even on the local level with all the, um, the, the puppy mill, uh, protection bills right. on the state level. Um, I mean, it was pretty amazing to watch the way people would come together. And um, once they were aware of what was going on, uh, there was certainly, and I think my camera just came out, but I know you can, you can still hear me. Yeah. I might just put you on full screen. Um, but it's just amazing to, to see that. So I'm just, I'm really happy to hear that there's been such, such momentum in Congress since you've been there and, and the acts that you've been able to um, accomplish. What would be your advice for somebody who is just getting started in their decision to become an advocate on any cause. It doesn't have to be animals. Uh, it could be on issues affecting veterans or issues that are affecting um, child, you know, child abuse or, or, or uh, trafficking, anything. What would, what would be some of your advice on, on how to get started? Well, I think I, I would say there are three things, that the three Ps, be polite, professional, and persistent. And, you know, I, I would add that proximity is important, but that's more for lobbyists than advocates. Um, you know, when you're talking to a member of Congress or their staff, you have to remember that every House member represents roughly 700 to 750,000 people. And they have a staff of maybe 10 or 12 people that are taking care of all the calls, all the casework, all of the emails for those 700, 750,000 people. And then senators, there's two for every state. And, you know, the New York senators are probably a lot busier than the Montana senators because they represent tens of millions versus, you know, less than a million people. Um, but uh, it's very important to be regularly in touch with their offices. You can call the U.S. Senate at 202-224-3121 and the U.S. House at 202-225-3121. Either one of those takes you to the Capitol switchboard. And then you can give your address and zip code. They'll take you to your senator or congressman. Uh, I think it's fine if you call once every few weeks and are just nice to them and, and build a rapport and talk with the staff, explain the issues and how you want to get your congressman to get involved and support this issue, provide the facts, always make sure that you have the facts and that there's nothing really loosey-goosey uh, or something that someone could turn back against you and say, hey, you said this, but it isn't accurate. You know, if someone has a question and you don't know the answer, tell them you don't know the answer and you'll find out and get the right person to them who can't answer that question. Um, I think that's very important. And then I'd say also that in any instance, if you do have 
some sort of direct contact with your member of Congress. If you've donated in the past, if you've met them in person, a lot of people give their cell phone to people um, that it's important to use that. Don't be afraid. Uh, they represent you. They work for you. But they also you know, want to be respected just like everybody else. Yeah, no, that's that's such a great point, Marty. And I think sometimes people just um, they they're they're, they're just like apprehensive about that kind of thing. When they meet a congressperson, they just assume that this person is so busy and they just aren't going to have the time to take care of their issue. And and you're right, it is understanding their constituency, how their time, respecting their time, it goes both ways. But um, I, I do believe that everybody can make an impact. And I do believe that it's also important to find organizations such as yours uh, to partner with, right? Um, other, other organizations that are working the same issue. Would you agree? Absolutely. No, we want to build bridges with people. Everyone should just like, you know, working with Carolyn, Has uh, Carolyn Howard on the Big Cat Bill. We worked with the Jockey Club and all three legs of the Triple Crown on the Horse Racing Integrity and Safety Act. Uh, we worked with the American Gaming Association on cockfighting issues. So it's very important to work not only with like-minded groups, but sometimes mm -hmm. unlikely allies that you can build a coalition with together that come at something from a different angle, because a lot of these issues are multidimensional and it's not just necessarily about animal welfare. It may be uh, about government waste and spending that milk issue. I was talking about, we're throwing $290 million a year away in the trash, in the carton because of the kids that won't open the milk. So, you know, you talk to organizations that want to help end government waste uh, and like I said, cockfighting, the American Gaming Association. So I think building likely allies is just as important as building unlikely allies. Absolutely. It, it really is. And I think sometimes that um, it, it, people think like they can't do anything. And sometimes it really just, like you said, starts with a spark, starts with writing a letter, starts with just joining a Facebook group that is, is, is part of a cause and, and, using that as a, as a spark, uh, to, to move on to something different. Um, how long do you think you're going to be at this? Is this like a lifelong thing for you now? Well, I don't ever plan on giving up, stopping, helping horses. You know, uh, I didn't really intend, uh, for this to be my career. I just sort of followed what I felt was right. And I don't have any plan to leave anytime soon. Uh, there's a lot we want to get done. I really want to get some version of the past act enacted and continue to help horses. I want to help in horse slaughter. That's another big thing that we're working on. So, um, you know, as long as we're successful and Congress is still listening to us and we're getting things done, we're going to stay at it in one form or another. Absolutely. Oh, I love it. That's great. You know, I think that it's just so refreshing to talk to somebody like yourself that's really like on the front lines and is just saying, okay, I'm going to do what I can, where I can, and as much as I can with the time that I have. Because to be honest, we really never know um, how much we're going to achieve. And I, and I always feel that you've got to celebrate those tiny wins. Has there been along the way just some small victories that you guys were able to capitalize and, and, and turn into something bigger? Because I think sometimes people get in animal advocacy. I know I used to get this way. You get so discouraged because it's such a hard slog. And so can you tell me a little bit about some of the little victories that you took advantage of to just celebrate along the way? Yeah, no, there are several instances, you know, when things come together and they feel right legislatively, you kind of know, I think just one instance that I can think of was uh, the dog and cat meat trade prohibition act. We really didn't have any Senate sponsors. We had it included in the house farm bill and another former colleague of mine and I 
uh, were discouraged because people uh, in the animal world were saying, no, don't just leave it alone, leave it alone. And we were not uh, going to leave it alone. We were determined we were going to get this done. And uh, we, we happened to go in this Senator Gillibrand, Kirsten Gillibrand from New York's office and talk with her staff. And I think by the end of the day, she had agreed to a lead an amendment. We had an amendment drafted and uh, just very quickly were able to get that included in the Senate Farm Bill. And that is the reason, uh, with an exception for Indian tribes that are transporting uh, wolf and coyote pups across state lines for religious purposes, dog and cat meat slaughter in the U.S. made illegal. And uh, so the Dog and Cat Meat Trade Prohibition Act was enacted in 2018 as a result of that. And then, you know, another instance, I think, um, probably more recently, um, which which was a, a big victory uh, in a way, um, but it was something that just sort of fell together was with the Big Cat Public Safety Act. When we passed it through the House, we had fierce opposition, really fierce opposition going into the Senate and things did not look good. Uh, we had met with a lot of the senators. Carol had come up here a number of times. Uh, one of the best meetings we had was with Ted Cruz. And I know you and I talked about um, uh, Dan. Dan oh, yes. mm-hmm. uh, he did vote for it. He did vote for good. it. But we, we, when we were taking the bill over to the Senate, these days you almost have to pass something by unanimous consent with a hundred senators agreeing, which is hard to do because you can't get floor time for a bill. They floor time is so little of it. You know, it's for big things like healthcare and um, you know, the federal spending bills, uh, defense spending, all those type of things. So I tell you all this to say three senators put a hold on the big cat public safety act and two of them, were senators that we were working with closely on the FDA Modernization Act, another bill. And because of those relationships, they very quickly and uh, I won't say very easily, but pretty easily um, lifted their holds. And then um, we were down to just one senator. And I was really concerned that we were in a bad spot because that one senator was from Oklahoma, where Tiger King, most of it was filmed and had dug in. uh, And it happened to be that there was a staff person there that had like the uncle, like his uncle was like the game warden or something. And this guy was uh, really a pain and had really slowed it down. And, you know, we were probably not going to get the the bill done. And then one day he got another job and left and we got it done. <laughs> so, you know, that was oh, wow. So, I, you know, when things fall together like that and uh, you, you know, I don't know if it's luck or God or hard work or a combination of all of it, but those are definitely rewarding experiences. And, and those two instances, I think, were probably the top two, I would say, where it just, you know, fell together just right. Not without a lot of hard work, but it, it just things came together. Things come together and they really do. And um, well, I applaud you, Marty, so much for this work. And I, you know, I'm going to be uh, hopefully right there with you in some way, shape or form when I'm when I'm retired from the Navy and I can devote more time to to animal protection causes. I, I think that this will always be something that um, I'm passionate about and something that will we'll continue to draw me to, to want to do more and, and be involved on, on a deeper level. Um, it'll be really interesting to go to this uh, meeting uh, coming up at the end of this month and seeing what the problems are in the U.S., in the uh, U.K. world uh, when it comes yes. to animals. Because I, I, I always think it's interesting. That's been one of the most fascinating parts of my military career as I've been involved with the animal issues is going from state to state. And, and seeing what the issues are. And so now I get to do it in another country. So, so that's going to be really neat. Um, 
I guess as we close out this, is there anything that I, you know, didn't ask you that you wanted to cover down on that we, we could we could talk about in more detail? I'm happy to do so. Well, I think the only thing I would add is, you know, just thank you for all of your service and all that you're doing. And I've watched you on social media and, you know, all the great work you're doing and now now globally. Um, but if you are interested in getting involved with us and helping animals, uh, we have two organizations. Animal Wellness Action is our 501c4 and Political Action Committee. Um, nonprofit that we do legislative work and political work through to help people get elected from both sides of the aisle that support our issues. And then the Center for a Humane Economy, um, where we do more corporate work. It's a 501c3 to try to change policies uh, with corporations like Nike and Adidas and Walmart and other chains and uh, publicly traded companies as well. So check us out at animalwellnessaction.org or centerforahumaneeconomy.org. Uh, you can also follow me on social media. All my handles uh, on all of the platforms are just at Marty Irby, M-A-R-T-Y-I-R-B-Y. And uh, know how much we appreciate it when you take action and contact your members of Congress, because I can tell you it makes a big difference. And every week someone comments to me that they get more uh, emails and calls about animal issues than just about anything else in Congress. And so it's really making a difference what you guys are doing out there. Awesome. Well, I put a little ticker there at the bottom to oh, animal yes. wellness action. So um, definitely please check Marty out. Um, I also have a link to his website on the uh, show notes uh, that I'll be posting on this. And so thank you so much, Marty. I really appreciate your time tonight. It's been an amazing conversation and uh, I know we'll keep in touch. I'll meet you uh, in the quote unquote green room here in just a moment. I'm going to go on a full screen and, and just give a little quick closing, but thank yep. you so much. Thank you. All right, folks, I uh, had to go into another camera, so that's why you see this screen. But uh, thank you again uh, for joining us tonight. This was a wonderful conversation. Just glad I was able to do it. Sorry about the Wi-Fi issues last night, but things like that do happen. And I hope you guys have a great start to your week. It is Monday, so that's always a busy time for at least me and I'm sure a lot of other people out there. But have a wonderful evening, and I'll talk to you all later. Bye now. <laughs>